If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars, because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. Since the pioneering work of authors like Mary Shelley and H.G. Wells, the science fiction genre has attempted to divine the future, and it's also reflected the hopes and fears of changing eras. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Professor Roger Luckhurst from Birkbeck University of London tackles listener questions and popular internet search queries about the history of all things sci-fi. Putting the questions to Roger was Matt Elton. So, Roger, thank you so much for being with us today. We are going to run through, in quite a short amount of time, a quite a big subject, which is the history of science fiction and what it tells us, I suppose, about history more generally. Um, As always on these podcasts, we've got some questions from people on social media, some questions from Google searches, some questions of my own to help tie things together. So um, we're going to get into some really exciting stuff later on, but we need to start with some fairly uh, dry, unfortunately. Although, I don't know, they, they, they do tell us things about terminology. 
We've had a lot of questions in about what is science fiction? What is hard science fiction? There's a meme going around Twitter at the moment about the difference between fantasy and science fiction. I wondered if you could just set up some of those ideas for us. Oh, let's start with the small thing first, then. This is this is entirely uncontroversial, and uh, th- there'll be no complaints about this. Um, yeah, so, so there is always what I call border policing. This is that kind of sense of, of, of people wanting to put really tight borders around. So, the, you know, the big opposition might be science fiction, uh, which is all about science and extrapolation and, and cognitive developments and technology uh, versus either the gothic, which is irrational, um, dreamlike, uh, all about the unconscious, about our repressed anxieties. Uh, and depending on your view, you know, science fiction is fantastic and rational and the gothic is awful and dreary and you shouldn't go near it. Um, and it's the same with fantasy. This is what's happening at the moment is, you know, on the one hand, you have science fiction. On the other hand, uh, you have hobbits and elves and, um, you know, people develop either a passion for elves or or find them toxic, you know, in various ways. And they try and police the borders between these things. Um, so science fiction emerged in the 1920s. And um, initially in America, it was seen as a kind of science literature of engineers. So there was a lot of kind of um, policing of this must be extrapolation from science. Uh, you can't have this, you can't have that. Um, you can have telepathy, though, weirdly, because that's science somehow. Um, you know, those sorts of th- those sorts of issues. And then they began to kind of define themselves as a serious literature against fantasy, which is myth and, and, and dream and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so you get a lot of policing and a lot of uh, angry uh, Twitter storms about, about this. So we've had one recently about uh, Tolkien because of the adaptation Rings of Power. Uh, and uh, you also have our arguments around Margaret Atwood saying that she doesn't write science fiction, she only writes speculative fiction. Uh, and I think it's designed to, to kind of generate debate. Uh, and it's fine if it's um, if it forces you to think through what it is that a genre is. Uh, but I think the best position to have, maybe I'm just old, is, um, is to relax about those things. Because I think most fans don't police the border in that kind of way they just you know they watch a horror film then they go and read Isaac Asimov they don't really see any kind of boundaries between these different things so I think I I tend towards a much more relaxed attitude to this partly because the history of science fiction criticism is all about shouting at what things aren't you know you you cannot be let in or we do not want this stuff Uh, and nevertheless it's still there and people still read it so why don't we obey what the what, what the readers do in fact. So some of it is about relaxing the policing of these boundaries so that more things are thought of, or we don't need to think about those boundaries so much. I mean, we, 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 there's, it is something that seems to sort of animate people, not necessarily in a negative way. Um, and another question, we've got a question from Liam Keogh here who says, what is considered the first science fiction literature and what themes did it cover? Now, I know this taps into a whole other range of issues. I mean, his question is interesting, though, because what he's asking is what is generally considered to be, which I think is a, maybe a safer thing. Yeah, that is. That's right. And I think the answer is that there are multiple answers. Um, so, so that I think we need to be aware of that. So, so many people say um, when H.G. Wells wrote uh, The Time Machine and published it, it was called a scientific romance. Uh, and then uh, 30 years later in America, um, someone coined the really awkward phrase scientific fiction. 
uh, which became science fiction in 1929. So there you go, quite straightforward naming. But actually, of course, there's a really long prehistory here and other people go for Ma- uh, Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein, which is 1818. And that certainly is a new kind of gothic, uh, which is using science and materialism as the kind of basis for its horror. So, you know, generating the spark of life with electricity uh, rather than any supernatural means. Uh, those sorts of those sorts of debates around her. So you have a father of science fiction and a mother of science fiction. Um, But then if you include utopian literature in this, of course, uh, Moore's Utopia was written in 1516. uh, And there are centuries of people who write and imagine utopias, which might be in different spaces so they might be somewhere set somewhere else but they're also often set in a different time so they might be in the future or they might be in the golden age of the past Uh, and all the way through particularly the 18th century you have lots of people writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of utopias women only ones men only ones um, you know the end of all alienation delight and and so on Um, so there are lots of multiple kind of origins and I think that's the best way of thinking about it Uh, it is that um, there are many answers to this question uh, and that's also fine. And and I think we'll get into um, Shelley and H.G. Wells, who you mentioned there, who are two really powerful and influential figures. I wanted to go back briefly to talk about utopias. And this is an idea that I think we'll come back to a couple of times. What does it tell us that the idea of a utopia or various utopias was so compelling for people in the 18th century? Uh, well, I think it's a it's a kind of an impulse that, that that stays broadly the same all the way through from from the beginning. So, someone like Thomas More is uh, he sets up a utopia on an island, uh, Utopos, which means no place, uh, but also the good place. So it's a, like a pun, uh, and it's it's quite clearly a, a sort of political statement about. Uh, what's the hell's wrong with uh, England and what you could do to put it right, you know, in your imagined kind of space. And actually Plato's Republic might be regarded as one of those, except that he banishes all poets and artists. So, you know, a bit tricky. Um, In the 18th century, uh, you have um, a huge eruption of those utopias because I guess we're we're at the beginnings of um, a new economic form, capitalism uh, and that causes uh, some people to kind of you know rush ahead in their mercantile adventures uh, but clearly there is also a cost to that there's a change it's a shift that people find very traumatic uh, and so they're trying to imagine alternatives other kind of ways of, of doing things uh, one of my favorite utopianists is um, Charles Fourier uh, and he formed a whole movement of Fourierism uh, and he, he he went through the French Revolution in 1789 uh, his family lost all of its money uh, he had a miserable time uh, as a as someone who was a merchant and then you know lost his living basically and he retreated and wrote this whole sequence of very extraordinary books uh, which was his imagined perfect utopia which only had had 1,620 people in it uh, and uh, lived in this collective house and and everyone could combine with everyone else. There was no alienated labour. Everyone could have sex with everybody else. It was all lovely. In fact, it was so lovely that this would produce a a wholesale change in the earth 
itself so that the sea would turn into lemonade that would be drinkable. Um, of course, uh, and this sort of wonderful uh, utopian kind of imagining. And they, uh, even if it's slightly mad, it had a really big influence on things like Marxism and uh, utopian communities in America all the way through the 19th century. So, you know, you have these mad dreams that nevertheless people t- pick up and run with and try and explore in various kinds of ways. So, And that's what science fiction does too. You know, it takes our present and sort of nudges something slightly into the future. So it's both informed by and informs historical kind of reality of the past, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense because because what you I think you say is so none of us know what the future is, right? So uh, and we don't know from minute to minute, but you extrapolate certain things. So some people say that science fiction is a literature of extrapolation. So you take a device that's just emerged, something like a mobile phone, uh, and you just nudge it. What's it going to be like? What's it going to do to us uh, in fifty years' time? Because it does change our our brains. In fact, you know, it changes our attention span. It changes what we uh, how we communicate with each other what's going to happen in 50 years time if you just extrapolate from that one device forward so that's quite often a a common way of thinking about science fiction in other words it's as much about the present and how we're imagining future than it is about the future because of of course many of them are wrong some of them are sometimes weirdly right but actually uh, most of the time it's wrong but that doesn't matter it's not it's not about that it's about how we right now imagine our future or can't imagine a future you know so we're full of apocalyptic doom laden dystopias at the moment because of climate change and other issues um can we imagine a future it's really difficult um in this scenario to imagine a future but some people nevertheless use science fiction to try Someone like Kim Stanley Robinson uh, says he has a commitment to write utopias because, you know, you need to need to offer solutions to what seem like utterly intractable problems. Something that I think is really interesting is that some of these ideas have proven so powerful and so long lasting, it can be hard to keep in mind just how long ago they were written. So Swede in Hungary on Twitter was among the many people to ask about Frankenstein, which you've talked about previously. Um Is it right to see gothic literature, which I suppose Frankenstein partly fits, as being the genre from which science fiction emerged? Um, In some respects, yes. So the gothic, um, which uh, people tend to say is um, emerging in the 1760s, so uh, some people say that the first gothic romance is uh, Horace Walpole's Uh, The Castle of Otranto, which came out in 1764. Uh, By the time you get to uh, the end of that really major wave, so Mary Shelley's um, Frankenstein is 1818, there is definitely a shift, which I always say is, is about... Um, a move from the authority of religion. So there's a kind of terror in the early Gothic of uh, particularly of Catholicism and of priestcraft and tyranny and and, and superstition, Uh, but nevertheless a a dreaded fear of what's going to happen to the soul. Uh, And in Frankenstein, it's it's all about um, the the, the kind of religious framing of that very scandalously because um, Mary and Percy Shelley were publicly atheists, which was, you know, a a very daring and dramatic um, position to have. And and actually, you know, it was illegal to publish things on (laughs) those kinds of topics quite often. Um, But it's an entirely scientific frame for Frankenstein. So, So this is getting together really gruesomely body parts arguing that the spark of life 
the vitalist spark is electricity. Mary Shelley went to see um, uh, exhibitions of, you know, frogs' legs famously being sparked after after apparent death. They seem to be alive. And they did lots of gruesome experiments on recently executed prisoners where they would try and spark them to life just after they'd been uh, executed, hanged. Um, and, and, and so that that's a scientific frame. The horrors now are the things that man can do. So the, 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 the kind of subtitle of Frankenstein is A Modern Prometheus because Prometheus stole the fire from the gods. And here we've got a, a story, the classic story, the Frankenstein science story of um, a scientist who steals the kind of godly power to create life. So it's a totally different paradigm by, by that point. Uh, and that's what begins to, I think, there's a good argument for, for arguing that the, the authority of science grows and grows and grows in the 19th century, so that by the time you get to H.G. Wells, he is the one of the first people to be trained to teach science in schools and, and, and universities. This hadn't happened before. It's all the authority of the classics and of theology that is being displaced, and Wells is the kind of product of that. But Mary Shelley is the first kind of early flag wave. And Shelley and her work really encapsulate, is it fair to say, a moment of shifting in society between the importance of religion and the importance of science. Does it tell us anything else about that particular moment in time? Uh, it tell us, tells us an awful lot, actually. And this, this is the case of, of, I think, any book that you put in historical context, but particularly Mary and Percy Shelley, who were these um, radicals and dissidents, uh, scandalous figures who were interested in science and uh, medicine and uh, uh, explored different kinds of ways of living. So they went into exile because they were so kind of scandalous. And it's not just Frankenstein, because Mary Shelley went on to write The Last Man in 1826, which people have been reading very closely in the last two years because it's about a pandemic. Uh, and it's one of the first Last Man books. In other words, you know, everyone kind of dies off and you have one one figure. And that's an, an amazing description of the slow spread of a fatal disease from the East uh, and the sort of panic that happens and the, and the emptying out of London. It's very spooky to, to, to read. It even has a a politician who's a prime minister who is relentlessly optimistic and says, fine, it's fine, it won't touch us at all. So there's, you know, reading that, you just think this is truly extraordinary, actually, um, that, that one of those origins there, and it's all scientific, right? It's all about viruses and medicine and, and, um, and pandemic. It's not a kind of religious basis for that, for that vision. So moving on to H.G. Wells, um, Gavin Griffiths on Twitter asks, was H.G. Wells the first writer to think of time travel or a time machine? <laughs> that's also um, that's also a kind of cause for debate because there is there is a Spanish um, book that's that's been recently translated, which is just a little bit before, which which you know some people argue has a has a time machine in it. Um, but the idea of displacement in time. Um, is is basically a, a narrative trick of quite a lot of fiction, isn't it? So we have flashbacks or we have flash forwards. Um, it, the good stories don't often go in a linear way, but they they, they kind of jump around in time. I think um, one of the really interesting. Um, points of reference here which people might be interested in reading is um, Charles Dickens's short story The Signal Man which is a ghost story it's a Christmas ghost story uh, and uh, it's about um, uh, 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 a signalman on a railway 
who keeps seeing a vision of a man flagging um, in, in absolute panic, you know, as if to kind of shut down um, what's happening. Uh, and to, to, to kind of ruin the ending, he's actually seeing himself in the future. Uh, so it's like, a, it's like a time travel ghost story. So, so it's not, no longer ghost of the past, which is what the Gothic's about, but it's, it's a ghost from the future. It's yourself signalling to yourself. And that seems to me like a really critical moment in which people are imagining uh, what effects do the future have on us, not just the past. So I think that's a good point of reference. Um, t- we should talk a little bit about H.G. Wells in some depth because I think he's one of those figures who is really influential. Um, and there's three books I want to talk about. One is The Time Machine. Um, what does The Time Machine tell us about the Victorian era and, I suppose, its preoccupations? Yeah, The Time Machine um, by H.G. Wells is so important. So it came out in 1895 uh, and uh, was immediately kind of considered a, a, a work of genius. And, and he, he was on his way immediately writing a, a, an extraordinary sequence of books, which were very influential on, on science fiction after that. Um, but it is very distinctly a portrait of um, London in the 1890s. So although he travels forward 800,000 years on his machine, um, what he's describing in that future society is uh, a classical division between, you know, the, the the capitalist workers who live underground are these feral kind of creatures who've devolved back into um, forms of uh, repeatedly described as monkeys or as spiders who, who kind of live underground. Uh, and then this effete, decadent um, group of people who live on the surface, who seem very benign initially, um, but actually um, are slowly dying out and, and being literally fed on by the Morlocks. And H.G. Um, Wells was from a lower middle class family. He was from trade. So he was not a um, not a person of the elite. Um, the literary elite didn't like him at all. He didn't like them very much. Uh, and uh, he was someone who was writing a kind of literature of the lower middle class uh, as a science professional. He started out writing textbooks. So, you know, here's someone who is coming from a different locus of knowledge, uh, but also he has a kind of socialist politics as well at this point and is sort of saying that the workers, in a gruesome way, will overthrow um, their, their, their oppressors. So, he's kind of very kind of bound up in that and it's a it's an amazing portrait actually of the decadence of the 1890s um as well as this uh, sense of the organization of the working class which was so feared at the end of the 19th century mob riots and you know stones being thrown for heaven's sake at gentlemen's clubs in Pol- in Pall Mall you know all of that sort of anxiety uh, about the, the about the upper tea working classes so he, it's it's incredibly bound up in the moment that he wrote and that's what makes it interesting i think so 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 less a sort of sense of is this an effective vision of uh, of the future well no because its vision of the future is 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 bound up with theories in the 1890s about decline and degeneration and entropy uh it's it's fully a victorian vision actually does it tell us something about the ways in which science fed into politics and political ideas in that period yes it really does so 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 i think one, one of the switches 
uh, that happens in the 19th century uh, is the, the building, basically, of a scientific culture and a set of institutions. So uh, it's only uh, after the Education Act in 1870 that science begins to come into the school curriculum and into the university curriculum. The word scientist isn't used until the 20th century, uh, although it had been coined in the 1830s, no one was really using it because it's not a profession. No one can, can, can do this. T.H. Uh, Huxley, one of the most famous scientists in, in the 19th century, uh, basically had to have a subscription so that he could uh, retire because he had no money. He made no money from this. There was no kind of career. He didn't have a private um, stash of cash. So, so, you know, there is no, there is no career. But H.G. Wells is kind of an emblem of the emergence of funded science and of the authority of science uh, and of the um, emergence. In the 1890s, you're getting huge strides in in physics, in biology, discovery of, you know, uh, bacteria and and viruses and how they work, um, x-rays, all kinds of new technological advances. And it really did feel like it was hurtling forward with science and technology. And it's it's Wells' training that gives him the ability to, in a sense, ride that storm and sort of filter it down into narratives that, that are really compelling. Um, whereas other people were really fearful of this. You know, they, they, they would say, well, I can't cope with the speed of life. I mean, there are at least four evening newspapers and I get 10 telegrams a day. You know, what, what on earth am I going to do with this? My, my brain is completely fried. I suffer from what they called Londonism, which was a kind of a disease of overstimulation, you know, that, that, that you, can, you were going to decline and degenerate and unravel because of the speed of modernity. Um, and, and, and I guess, you know, it, traffic did go faster in 1895 than it does now. So maybe they were suffering from speed. I mean, that's that's fascinating, particularly if we then think about 1896 is the island of Dr Moreau. Is that also a book about fear of what might happen to society and about what society has already become as well? Yes. So The Island of Dr Moreau, uh, which came out the year after uh, The Time Machine, is, you know, it gives you another branch of um, this crossover between Gothic and uh, science fiction, I think, because it is truly gruesome. It's about a doctor who is in uh, an, on an isolated island, is basically splicing up animals and, 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 and producing new uh, horrific creatures and then trying to educate them, give them language, turn them into um, human beings, give them this kind of sense of, of, of uh, humanity. And of course, it all goes horrifically wrong and they degenerate back into their animalistic kind of forms. But there's a, th- th- there's a real kind of sense of glee here about the imagination that Darwin has given uh, to um, the public because, you know, suddenly millions of years in the past, what do we retain from all of that? Uh, ancestry, this biological ancestry, but also what's going to happen in the future? You know, is this... Darwin was quite comforting in some ways. He he was very careful to say that, don't worry, the advance is upwards uh, towards perfectibility. Uh, it was very kind of compatible, if you like, with a kind of benign, um, even even religious sort of conception of we're heading towards perfection. But in the in the late 19th century, people were saying, hang on a minute, if you can go up the evolutionary chain, you can also slide back down it. And that's what happens, say, in Jekyll and Hyde. You know, Jekyll um, keeps taking his mysterious white powder uh, and he, um, he, de- he degenerates back into this kind of animalistic form. And that was a that was a sheer terror of um, this theory of degeneration. So not, you know, advancing 
rising, uh, but declining? And was that a portrait of what was going to happen uh, to England? You know, you have a decline and fall narrative. This is the height of the empire, but where else is there to go? Down. You know, so that's a sense of, uh, of, of this is England at its, its imperial pomp, but it's full of this terrified imagination that actually we are going to decline and fall. And that sort of haunting is really important in Wells. It's why Wells is constantly arguing for different utopian kind of outcomes. If we stay on this course, he's suggesting, then we will decline. So what we need is, is a different organisation of society. And the idea of imperial decline and fall is, I think, also central to War of the Worlds, which I think is 1898. Does that tell us something about the Victorian Empire, the British Empire at this point in history? Yes, it does. I mean, it, it, the, the beginning of the War of the Worlds um, is this um, uh, brilliant opening, you know, so, so people can find this on the net immediately. You know, just just read the opening kind of couple of pages because it's this brilliant trick of what science fiction can do so it's kind of saying here we are uh the the english uh, british empire is at its height we are the most superior creatures on the planet but what if there was an even greater kind of superior kind of power that was looking down at us what if actually what we'd done to tasmania which was you know kind of take it over and through accident and design basically kill off the entire population uh, what if martians arrived and did that to well the home counties and and london so there's like a gleeful portrait of um, all of these towns that the Wells had kind of lived in and been judged uh, and disapproved of. Uh, so he systematically sets about destroying them with lasers because, you know, he, he's, he's got this wonderful vision of destruction of all of these petty-minded people. Uh, very important, there's a priest in there who can't accept the reality of this uh, overthrow. And then the brilliant um, ending of that book is it's not the British ingenuity or engineers or science that, that wins. It's the fact that um, the Martians aren't protected from bacteria uh, that kill them off. So it's nothing to do with with us, uh, nothing to do with humanity. It's to do with um, with to do with viruses and disease, and that's a sense of of again another sort of switch, another really satirical subversion of um, British imperial power is uh, what Wales is after at that point. It's a very brilliant book, I think. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. H.G. Uh, Wells predicted an atom bomb uh, in 1914, and he thought it would emerge around about 1945. So that's kind of a fairly amazing kind of sense of, of, of what they were understanding about, you know, the, the projection into the future. You can release this extraordinary energy. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. And it's interesting that it's not military might that defeats them, but it's science. It's it's science in its purest form, I suppose. Yeah, or else it's 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 biology, you know, because science doesn't kind of come into this really. I mean, the the the, the defenses that human humanity have against the Martians don't work at all, and they might think that they're at the height of scientific power, but actually, it's the pure fact of biology. You know, if you come from somewhere else, um, then um, you're going to be susceptible to diseases, and this is what happens with settler colonialism so you know it's why when you arrive uh in this virgin territory so thought of uh, in north america um that the, the, what you do basically is transmit all kinds of diseases that kill off the natives because they have no they built up no immunity to those kinds of things uh so it's it's mass slaughter or, <laughs> or purely by accident and that's what um the war of the worlds is also just neatly inverting what if we were the object of that, what if someone brought us a disease or a, an illness that we have no immunity to? And we've also been living through that in the last two years, haven't we? Turning to uh, search engine results, it's interesting. A huge portion of them are about three male American authors, all born in 1920. And I want to talk about them a bit. And then I also want to talk to you about whether it's a coincidence that they share those characteristics. So they're Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Frank Herbert. Agrobiodiverse on Twitter asks, who is the greatest English language science fiction writer and why is it Isaac Asimov? So that's, <laughs> the, that's the kind of the tone. I wanted to talk to you about um, why the ideas of these three men have proven so powerful and so long-lasting, I suppose. Yeah, so I think the the shift um, comes from H.G. Wells and the English or British scientific romance, which is, you know, it develops in the 1890s and gets very kind of fixed quite quickly. And you can see Arthur C. Clarke actually is at the end of that tradition as well. He was someone who who's kind of directly influenced by uh, Wells. So there's kind of a continuity there. But what happens in the 1920s uh, is... Uh, a very specific set of circumstances in America, uh, which which develop 
um, these pulp magazines. So it's Hugo Gernsback, who is uh, a guy who publishes, uh, he's an entrepreneur in radio technology. So this is the beginning of people building their home radios and communicating with each other, which is very big in America, CB radio, all that sort of, sort of stuff. Uh, he, he develops all of these kind of pulp magazines around that. And then he just starts adding fiction in, but then realises that all he can do is just is just reprint old HG Wells stories. Uh, so then he starts trying to commission um, new things to come through. And that's where science fiction is named. That's where it comes from. And in 1929, you get astounding science fiction, which is often considered to be the home of American engineer hard science fiction. So this sort of extrapolative idea. Uh, so it's very important that people um, writing in that have a kind of authority training in science. And that's certainly uh, what Asimov has, who was a chemist. Uh, and I mean, Frank Herbert's mind was extraordinary, but he he was really interested in ecology and biology and science. Ray Bradbury, a bit more of a kind of fantasy um, uh, crossover figure, uh, softer science fiction. He was not so keen on um, hard extrapolative uh, kind of science fiction. And in the 1930s, there is just simply a place for people like that to publish an awful lot of stuff and kind of grow up in public, really. Uh, and uh, it's very unusual community in that they have very active letters pages and uh, the, the letter writers themselves become writers. So this is quite often how people kind of start is that they move into these uh, kind of areas. Uh, and then and, and another figure I would add who's, who's probably more important than all of those three, I would say, controversially, is Robert Heinlein, uh, who was also, you know, trained uh, scientist and worked as an engineer uh, in um in the war uh, for the navy, he'd been in the he'd been in the navy, um, and astounding science fiction's editor John Campbell was someone who was also trained in science and was very uh, strict about um, the rules of what 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 science fiction kind of could do. So I think there's a kind of whole cluster here that makes American science fiction in the twenties and thirties really specific, and that's where those key figures uh, emerge from. Was it Heinlein who wrote Starship Troopers? Or, or so the, Heinlein the thing did that... write, yeah, that's right. Heinlein, so Robert Heinlein um, was really crucial in a way for uh, a post-war shift, which was that he started out in magazines and, and pulp magazines and, and, and wrote quite a lot of short stories. Um, but in the immediate post, post-1945 period, he was the first science fiction writer to kind of get a book deal uh, with a major mainstream publisher. And that changes the whole nature of where science fiction is published in America. It moves from magazines, pulp magazines, to um, paperbacks and, and that sort of mass selling of paperbacks. And Heinlein was the first person really in this genre, which was very low and very minor and considered, you know, not at all important. He was making money out of this. He was making a very, very good living indeed out of this kind of stuff. And he also targeted young adult readers, as we would now call it, uh, a whole series of books focused around uh, young protagonists and, and so on. So he was very influential. He was also fabulously right-wing. Uh, and um, Starship Troopers, which came out in 1959, the brilliant film version by Paul Verhoeven, I always recommend. Uh, it's so funny. Um, but that is a very divisive book because it kind of argues that America should be a militaristic society. Everyone should go through military training. You can't vote unless you've been 
been in the army and done your service, you know, that sort of thing. And you must relentlessly attack all alien life forms um, which are a threat to your dominance, you know. So it's a very kind of strong politically uh, from the right. And you get someone like Ray Bradbury, who's much more identified with a kind of softer left, a liberal kind of approach to these sort of things, writes very mournfully about the nuclear age. Uh, the Martian Chronicles is a is a wonderful book from 1950, which is like the opposite of Heinlein, really anti-militaristic, um, very very sort of full of melancholy about imperialism and colonialism. Uh, the Martians are dying off, you know, as the Americans arrive on Mars. That sort of sense of of, of the politics of that. So you get the whole array there, and, and Frank Herbert's June coming in the 1960s is that major blockbuster which again is is very in front of its time, really, thinking about ecology and precarious um, sand desert kind of cultures. Uh, he was someone who was very interested in experimental farming and extreme conditions, and he imagined all of this sort of stuff on uh, the planets uh, of Arrakis, you know, this sort of sense of, uh, of a whole culture, but a desert culture inside that. So they're all very informed by science, but they, science doesn't give you a politics, um, politics comes from how you how you work with science and technology. So you get either a Heinlein or you get um, uh, Bradbury. Um, I wanted to talk to you about a few other authors that haven't come up on Google searches, but who I think might tell us something. One of them who I think also falls into that uh, trend of writing about ecology and environment is Ursula Le Guin, who, what were her sort of key ideas and concerns and influence, I suppose? Yeah, so finally we get to talk about a woman author. Amazing. Um, and um, Ursula Le Guin uh, is very important um, in uh, the emergence of a kind of much more uh, overtly feminist science fiction, which is not to say women weren't absent, were, were not around. You know, they, they, there were women writing all the way through from the beginning of, of science fiction. The first, you know, most significant utopia is Margaret Cavendish going all the way back to, to the blazing world in the 17th century. Uh, and you do get women writers who write really good science fiction in the late 19th century alongside Wells. But Ursula Le Guin is a really significant figure in the 60s. Um, and I think her background is really interesting. So both of her parents were anthropologists uh, and uh, she was brought up in, um, in in a very kind of rich university context where she was exposed to lots of really interesting ideas. And so her fiction is quite often uh, driven by what it means to encounter alien cultures, what it means to encounter the other. And her view is not one of um, search and destroy all everything that is different from you, but what would it be like? How would you try and deal with a completely um, alien culture? Um, so, you know, one of the, her key books uh, is The Left Hand of Darkness, and she's she's very interested in, in, in exploring kind of alternate um, universes. You know, what does it mean when you encounter someone who can change gender um, at different points in their life? Um, what would that do to your whole kind of system of, of belief and thought? It completely throws the, the narrator in quite interesting ways. So she's very interested in the anthropology of that sort of stuff. And she's also quite early on, um, I mean, the, 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 the understanding of, of 
ecology and the damage being done to uh, the ecologies of, of fragile ecologies of the earth was beginning to emerge in the 1960s. But this is all kind of very early kind of stuff. But but she was very interested in that. So so maybe native cultures that you encounter or encounter, have a different relationship to nature. It's not seen as a resource uh, to be used and consumed, but that you live with in, 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 in totally different ways. And that has been hugely influential too. So she's a kind of very, uh, again, soft science fiction, liberal end, um, interested in intellectual um, social ideas, sociology and anthropology, uh, the kind of stuff that, say, Asimov... Uh, or Heinen are less interested in, although they have many things to say about it. Uh, her focus is not on hard technology necessarily, but on uh, these ideas of encounter, I think. So she's crucial. Another figure is Stanislaw Lem, who um, is Polish, I believe. Um, what were his concerns and ideas? Um, and what do they tell us about that point, I suppose, in European and international history? Yeah, it's so important to, and I hope we can say more about this uh, towards the end, but it's so important to have a kind of international or multinational perspective for, for science fiction. Um, so we're beginning to understand that that um, although we've had this endless argument about is H.G. Wells the father of science fiction, actually there are lots of traditions that are emerging at around about the same time in many different kind of um, nations. Uh, and so there is a kind of, tradition in Russian writing and Soviet uh, Union writing, which of course is very interested in utopia. In fact, the Bolsheviks who, who, who drove the revolution wrote science fiction. They wrote utopian kind of science fiction, some of them quite explicitly. Um, uh, and you know, were very interested in in the politics of, of of that of projecting futures. They were very interested in futurism. That's those sorts of ideas. By the time you get to someone like Stanislav Lem, who is writing uh, in what was then a satellite communist state, um, so part of the part of the whole uh, Soviet Union alliance in in the East uh, during the Cold War, um, he's got a slightly different relationship to uh, science fiction. So the virtue of it is that it can be allegorical. That is, you can write about the state that you're in without directly criticising the state, because as soon as you do, your work gets suppressed. So science fiction becomes a very kind of powerful device or a genre in which you can displace your criticism and and, and uh, begin to kind of target some concerns. So I, th- I think he's, he's, he's important for that. He's very interested in science and technology, um, but also has this sort of softer edge. So um, if you read Solaris, uh, which has been filmed twice, both times brilliantly, but very differently. Um, that's about a bunch of scientists who are sent to a planet uh, to try and communicate with what seems to be a planetary consciousness. Uh, and it's communicating in a completely different way from, from language. Uh, it kind of extracts your worst memory from your mind and, and kind of beams it back at you. And, and is there any possibility of communicating with this absolute other? Uh, so that's a really interesting, crucial kind of story. Uh, and there are many um, figures like Lem who kind of right on the edge of censorship, 
um, and are being suppressed by um, by communist party state who who don't like this stuff. They don't they don't want this uh, kind of material. They want happy tractor driver kind of realist material. Um, so that they're kind of treated with suspicion on the edge uh, of this, and it makes their work really intriguing. And 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 you have to interpret quite hard uh, what it is that they might be getting at. So that's true also of say the Strugatsky brothers who wrote Roadside Picnic, um, which became Stalker, uh, the film by Tarkovsky. Uh, and it's a very influential story because it's about alien technology that no one understands, uh, that you sort of pick up and it either does wondrous things to you or it kills you or it mutates you and no one quite understands uh, w- what it is. But that was a book that was suppressed uh, as somehow, in some way, critical. We're not sure how, but we would like to um, ban and censor this anyway. So that's a sense of, uh, of how you might use science fiction, again, in a sort of political context. Um, uh, as a sort of way of, of, of displacing criticism is very important. Uh, Spaghetti Tree on Twitter uh, wants to know about the impacts of the early Cold War in that transitional period where science began to truly influence literature. Is there something about the Cold War that we can say more generally about science fiction and, and, and history? Yeah, that is a really good question. And I do think... Um, you know, I, I so I've written a history of science fiction, which I I hinge around 1945 because I think 1945 is an absolutely crucial moment. Uh, that's when we get you know the atom bomb being used. That is the first super weapon that's been imagined for so many decades by science fiction actually realised. Uh, H.G. Wells predicted an atom bomb uh, in 1914. And he thought it would emerge around about 1945. So that's kind of a fairly amazing kind of sense of, of, of what they were understanding about, you know, the, the projection into the future. You can release this extraordinary energy. But what that, of course, produced was um, these these absolutely implacably opposed blocks between West and East, um, the Soviet Union and its communist uh, allies versus America and its capitalist allies. Um, and you get lots of science fiction, which is uh, either, you know, utterly dystopian. So imagining nuclear um, meltdowns of various kinds or survival of nuclear catastrophe in various kinds of ways. Um uh, but you also get um, a, a sort of drive to try and think beyond these political divisions. That's actually what Arthur C. Clarke's most transcendent work is about, is he's always saying we need to leave behind human division uh, and these political kind of shifts. And it's only science, it's only space travel moving outwards um, that can allow us to transcend this, which is why his visions are so sort of ecstatic, you know, the end of 2001, whatever the hell that means, uh, is a sort of vision of transcendence of these kinds of um, political moments. So so the Cold War is really, really very important. And you get someone like um, uh, Robert Heinen, again, who, who works out the kind of logic of um, mutually assured destruction. That is, you know, we've got a bomb. If you set yours off, we'll set ours off. Everyone, everything ends. So it's a kind of, you know, a stalemate. He works out that logic in the middle of the Second World War. You know, that's a sense of, of, of right before uh, all the politicians have got there. Uh, an uh, American writer like Judith Merrill um, takes a very different view of this. So, you know, what's the effect of this on mothers, on motherhood? Uh, what if you produce your mutant children? What's going to happen about that? 
Um, Octavia Butler, another really important writer uh, emerging in the 1970s, is sort of saying that humanity is is kind of doomed with this kind of violence and, 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 and constant drive to domination. So we actually need to actively embrace the alien other and become something else, become, move beyond our division. And that is also, I mean, hers is driven by... Um, a question around race. She was one of the earliest um, black women science fiction writers. But it's also clearly a Cold War logic as well of, of let's just move beyond this kind of division. And you get really weird things uh, happening. So that in um, 1980s, some some listeners might remember that Ronald Reagan had this whole project called Star Wars, which was, you know, to kind of put um, a defence system in space. That was written for him by a group of science fiction writers. Robert Heinlein, Greg Baer uh, were heavily involved in that. They wrote a report out of their science fiction, which then became government policy. You know, it's extraordinary the influence that those science fiction writers had. They were all very politically motivated to help the Republican uh, Party and to, uh, in a sense, extend the Cold War into space itself. Um, and, And so, you know, this vision perhaps didn't work because it was science fiction. But nevertheless, it got billions of dollars. It's amazing. Uh, That leads nicely, actually, talking about the ideas in which science fiction has influenced reality. N.P. Ryan on Twitter uh, asks, is it right to say that Churchill's initial fear that Londoners wouldn't come back out of underground stations if allowed to shelter from bombs in them came from the time machine, the H.G. Wells story? Do you know (laughs) whether that's true or not? I can't can't answer whether it's specifically true or not, but I think there is a... That was certainly the, the view, was that if people were... Uh, allowed to go into the underground system, um, then they would never come out and the, the kind of the economy would, would sort of collapse. So there was a genuine kind of fear about that. There is a sort of imagination of science fiction which is kind of bubbling around, uh, which has these visions of, of underground living, which become even stronger in the Cold War. So bunker living and this idea of, of, of we all ending up in bunkers. There's a great novel by Philip K. Dick, the 1950s American uh, writer called The Penultimate Truth, which is where humanity is has basically been for decades living in bunkers underground, watching news feeds of robots fighting a war on the surface. And they discover that the robots are just simply making films uh, and that there has been no war for, for, for decades. And they've all been tricked into this kind of system by artificial intelligences. So, you know, there is a, a, a sense of a, of, of a bunker kind of um, imagination to science fiction. So maybe Churchill was picking up on that. He did read absolutely everything. We should return to the idea that you mentioned earlier about other traditions or other voices that haven't been given perhaps the recognition that they might otherwise deserve. Who should we champion? Who should we highlight that we haven't already talked about in this conversation? Yeah, so I mean, I think there are many. Um, it's a golden age right now. It's a golden age of science fiction, really. There's so many, so much extraordinary work. But I think what's extraordinary about it is this explosion across the whole globe. So it's now impossible for um, you know someone like me to sit here and say I've read you know everything in science fiction. You might have been able to do that maybe in nineteen. 19- 
50 <laughs> uh, and, and it's becoming very difficult. But now it's simply impossible. And we need kind of experts who um, there's a whole uh, Indian kind of science fiction world. Uh, there's a whole um, uh, African science fiction, lots of different kind of countries producing lots of different kinds of work. Um, I've just been reading The Old Drift by Namwali Serpil, which won um, the best science fiction novel uh, Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2020. And that's set in Zambia. And you just think, is this a science fiction novel? And it slowly, carefully does take you into a science fictional world in a really clever, ingenious kind of way. And it feels very uh, significant, vital, important kind of work that's, that, that's being done. There's a thing called Gulf Futurism, which is uh, a kind of science fiction that's emerging from the Middle East. So Frankenstein in Baghdad, uh, amazing um, book by Ahmed Sadawi, uh, which reimagines the the monster in the middle of um, the, the the Iraq War. Uh, this is a monster that put together from the body parts of people who've been blown up in the explosive um, in explosions, uh, and it kind of enacts the revenge of all the people who've been killed. It feels like a completely new, brilliant um, uh, world of invention. So there's loads of stuff that's going on. And um, if people are able to get to, to London in October, there is a whole massive exhibition called Science Fiction uh, at the Science Museum, which is trying to explore these ideas. I was involved in the development of that over the last five years, and they've been really committed to this idea of, of, a, of a global vision. Um, so there's a, there's a quick way of doing that. It, it, it's going to be a great exhibition. Thank you so much. I wanted to end with just a few quick questions. Um, we've had LDOP Exeter asks, what sci-fi tropes have we achieved? And they suggest <laughs> sliding doors, data pads, medical scans. And what have we missed? Hoverboards, Soylent Green. I mean, some of them, I'd argue it's a good thing we've missed. Is, <laughs> is, is, is there something we can say about the shape that history has taken compared to the shape that science fiction offered? Or is that too, too impossible? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. It's a perennial question as well. So should you measure science fiction by, you know, what it accurately predicts? Uh, and there is a, there's a there's a famous book and phrase, which is, you know, uh, where's my jet board dude or whatever it was called? You know, that that sense of where's my, where, where is all of this promise, you know, of, of this technology? It hasn't arrived. Uh, so these, but they're sometimes called retro futures, this idea that, you know, back in the 50s, everything, you know, we, we didn't need food anymore. We'd just have a pill and it would be great. Uh, or there'd be no work, you know, labour would be kind of ended and we'd all just lie around in hammocks uh, and uh, order around robots. Uh, and that hasn't happened. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it's much more interesting to look at how certain kind of imagination and and, and uh, explorations of technology have slowly kind of arrived. So many people say that the um, the mobile phone in America has this very different flip kind of device doesn't it so you kind of often open it out and that's all because of star trek so you know it needed to be like the communicators in 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 star trek um if you um read uh, arthur c clark on uh, the future of computing in the 1960s so he'd already predicted satellites and then he said 1960s well i think we're gonna basically in the future have uh, a handheld kind of device a computer uh where you can watch television you can communicate with your friends uh, it would be you know but by um, by vision and sound, you wouldn't need to worry about telephones anymore. Uh, and, and he's describing, and also describing the shape when you see him on TV in the 60s, of an iPad. And it's kind of fairly extraordinary that you can do that. People sometimes go to... Um, 
the kind of work of, say, um, James Cameron, a filmmaker, director, he did Avatar, but also Steven Spielberg, um, who in his science fictions, kind of he hires futurologists in order to try and just kind of tilt things um, slightly into the future. So, you know, their films are predicting, well, they, they create new technology, so why James Cameron takes so long to produce a film is he has to invent a camera to film it. Um, but in Spielberg's case, um, you know, eye iris recognition, all that sort of stuff is is going on in his his kind of films. And you know, these these personal ads which kind of pick up your um, yeah, as you walk along the street, they sort of pick up your um, signature uh, and uh, direct personal ads at you. We've all been freaked out by what Instagram can do to you when it can really predict your desires in in quite extraordinary ways. So that sort of sense of that artificial intelligence has obviously has been a kind of key idea. And people are are we on the edge of what's called a technological singularity, which is where machines become conscious? Um, even just a couple of months ago, um, someone in Google said, "Wait a minute, I think this. Th- I think my computer's just got <laughs> just got sentient," uh, and he was probably moved from his job but actually that idea of, of we're right on the edge of this kind of development is 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 partly due to science fiction partly due to science fiction being so fluid now with advanced technology companies startup companies you know tech uh, kind of stuff we all look to elon musk who's doing research into telepathy effectively uh, and also you know extended life research which is massive in the silicon valley um you know will walt disney's head that's been frozen allegedly uh, be reanimated um his family repeatedly deny that his head is frozen by the way uh and um you know that sort of culture of 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 can we escape the bounds of the human itself it feels very kind of vibrant and that's for me why science fiction is uh, so vital now is there's a sense of all the technology is accelerating we're in the middle of a revolution a digital revolution we don't quite know where it's going we can do these extraordinary things now with with gene editing you know do, do we have enough kind of moral ethical um, capacities to control that and it's science fiction that imagines both good versions and bad versions of, of what might come out of that and understanding the history of science fiction and how it's shaped our understanding of reality in the past can help us make sense of where we might be going in the future. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, and, and I think that's both, you know, both hard in the sense of technology and, and science, but also soft in the in the sense of what, what are the political consequences of this kind of thing. So, you know, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, uh, written as an attack on a conservative Reagan um, world in the 1980s, suddenly gets this major new boost, um, not just from shifting um, media, so becoming a TV streamed series, but also because of a political context in which abortion is suddenly, you know, shifted in, in the States. And all of the protests pick up on the imaginary of of um, of of Handmaid's Tale. So you get, you know, the handmaidens uh, who arrive at protests and so on. So it's very powerful. And that that kind of sense of she could see the kind of certain consequences of this and isn't it freaky that a certain version of it has started to emerge, um, suggests the power of the imagination to project kind of forward and to warn, but also to em- embrace and celebrate as well as question or just say there's, it's completely unpredictable what's going to happen. 
Um, it's a great book by Charles Stross called Accelerando, uh, which is about, um, which is crazy because it's just a technological singularity happens, uh, but then it's completely unpredictable, you know, and um, you can decide if you want to put your consciousness into a flock of birds for a while, if you like, and and things get crazier and crazier and weirder and weirder because it's no longer in our control. You know, that's a sense of technology just uh, producing itself and doing very weird and strange things. So, you know, there's, there's lots of ways of imagining the future which are really powerful still. That was Roger Luckhurst. The exhibition that Roger mentioned, Science Fiction, Voyage to the Edge of Imagination, is running at the Science Museum in London until the 4th of May 2023. To find out more, visit sciencemuseum.org.uk. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 